0: Welcome to Health or Consequences. I'm Paul Hattis from the Tufts University School of Medicine. I'm here with my co-host John McDonough, the T.H. Chan School of Public Health at Harvard. Our podcast, which runs under the Codcast label of Commonwealth Magazine, aims to bring our listeners rich opportunities to hear from a variety of people and on a range of topics tied to health care services and their financing, as well as public health issues here in Massachusetts. One very important policy space for sorting out what to do to advance health care services access affordability and quality is of course what happens in our state legislature and with the new legislative session starting to get into higher gear we find it timely to have with us today two very special guests the two co-chairs of the legislature's joint committee on health care financing both new to their leadership positions, Representative Jennifer Benson from Lunenburg and Senator Cindy Friedman from Arlington. Welcome to you both. Thank, Thank you. you. Before we get into discussion of issues, I think our listeners would gain from learning really a little bit more about your background, including what you did before becoming a legislator, as well as your legislative interest and focus during your time in office until now. Representative Benson.
1: Thank you. Well, So before I became a legislator, I was a mom and a college student and a school committee member and a local elected official in my town and um, really kind of never planned to run for office and it just sort of happened. My daughter convinced me to run. So that's why I ran.
0: Senator Friedman?
2: Well, similar to um, Rep Benson, I never expected to be here either. Um, I started out as a uh, school teacher. I, I taught school for six years, and then I was in high tech managing uh, hardware and software engineers for 20. Um, after I left high tech, um, spent a lot of time um, making things and wondering what value they were going to add um, to the world. And uh, then I uh, met Senator Ken Donnelly and uh, helped him with his campaign. And uh, he asked me to be his chief of staff. So for the next 10 years, I was uh, chief of staff and we worked on a lot of behavioral health issues together as well as other things. And um, unfortunately, he passed away um, due to a brain tumor and it was really important for me to continue the work that um, we had started together and so I ended up running
0: and behavioral health has been a focus of your uh, legislative interests and efforts up till now.
2: Yes, very much so. Um, along with uh, a lot of workforce issues okay. and labor, but deaf and behavioral health has been a big part of okay. what I've done.
0: Representative Benson, what's been your interest up, t- up to this joint uh, point to coming to co-chair?
1: Uh, well it's been pretty varied I came in out of coming out of the school committee in um, a public education advocate and so I spent my first two terms on the education committee working hard in those areas um, but quickly became very interested in uh, electrical uh, grid infrastructure and um, renewable energy and so I've spent a lot of time working on environmental legislation as well
0: okay thank you
3: so welcome both of you thank you for joining us today it's really exciting to have you here and uh, One of the biggest issues, not just in Massachusetts, but across states all across the country and in D.C., involves the uh, cost of pharmaceuticals. So today, April 11th, you're both chairing a public hearing on pharmaceutical issues. So we know that Governor Baker and Secretary Sutter's also want to have action on pharmaceuticals this session. What what action on drug regulation might we, should we expect from the legislature and the administration uh, this term? Uh, why don't we start with Senator Friedman?
2: Okay. Um, so I can't speak for the administration. Um, I am very pleased to see that the governor, um, along with the legislature, is really interested in this issue. So um, it might be a point in time where we can actually get something done. Um, so of course, any any legislation we're looking at has to do with healthcare. we need to address pharmaceuticals. And I think the first thing that we're probably all looking to do is open the doors and better understand exactly what's going on around pricing and the pipeline and how that works. And um, so I think there's going to be a lot of effort on transparency in, uh, uh, to start with, because I think we, we need to know where we are and why these costs are being... Um, are increasing so quickly. Um, it's now it's, it grew five percent from uh, 17 to or 16 to 17. Uh, the cost of pharmaceuticals to the to the state. So this is something we really have to look at, and I think the first place to look at is is to transparency. Mm-hmm. Representative,
1: I totally agree with that, and. Um, I think the House, we just released our budget uh, yesterday, and we have an outside section relating to mass health specifically and pharmaceutical spending. Um, And I think, you know, this follows in line with one of the areas the governor was interested in pursuing So we're kind of coming out hot with this and you know our hearing today I know I anticipate a pretty long and involved hearing. This is a complex issue But luckily we you know we need we do need more transparency And I think you know one of the basic things we need to do is we have this robust set of data and analysis done by several agencies here in Massachusetts and one is the health policy Commission which um, really looks at at data and cost trends we have to make sure we're getting more information in that scenario from both manufacturers and the pharmacy benefit managers and I think that is a baseline that we just have to meet this session Uh, but moving forward you know we have we can see you know if we look at those cost trends hearings and I know we're going to talk about that maybe a little more later we can identify you know top areas of increases and one of them is pharma spending and the other big one is outpatient um, hospital services so you know, it's, we're, it's pretty unique, and we're pretty fortunate here to be able to use data in a really productive and useful way in digging into some of these areas, and we can't necessarily figure out causation from that as, as a one-to-one, this is causing this, but we're starting to be able to peel back those layers and do that.
3: Mm-hmm. Is there anything that either of you would rule out in terms of state action, price regulation, anything, or is everything on the table at this point?
2: As far as I'm concerned, everything's on the table. And I, you know, I think before we start, you know, I mean, if we're really going to solve this problem, we have to have everything on the table and give it equal um, time in terms of research and understanding will it, what will have the most effect um, and, and what will serve the residents of the state, because that's really what we're focused on, is, is how do we help people get access to health care that they can afford.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, one thing we do have to be cognizant of, of course, though, is there's a lot of federal law around this issue. And um, we don't have free reign to necessarily do everything we'd like to do um, to sort of give the consumers more control over these these prices so you know one of the things we've been doing is looking at what other states have done and what court cases have come out of that Um, certainly we don't want to have something that's immediately um, reacted to in a negative way in the courts and then have to start all over so I I think we can learn from what some of our neighboring states or other states around the country have done Uh, but the other thing is I think this um, outside section I would encourage everyone to look at in the budget really really does go quite far. Um, It's very similar to what several other states have done, including New York and California. Um, And it gives, I think, uh, the state and HPC in particular more control um, and more of a role in all those negotiations um, with manufacturers and holding them accountable.
3: Great. Thank you. So let's turn to behavioral health. The, The administration also has a strong interest in behavioral health and integrating behavioral health into the overall health care uh, much better. Um, either of you, do you have priorities, things that you would like to get done in terms of changes or improvements in terms of behavioral health in the Commonwealth,
1: well, representative? Sure. sure. Senator Friedman, I think, has been such a leader in this area, so I'm going to let her sort of get into the detail. But what I will say is one of the reasons this is important, not only because it's the right thing to do. Uh, but we also can know through all this data collection that um, it's, a, it's a big issue with comorbid conditions having a mental health issue. And so if you are um, a patient who is diabetic or have some other chronic disease, having a, a uh, also having a mental health um, condition, really increases the cost and the um, makes it trickier to treat those patients. And so, yes, it's simply the right thing to do, because morally it is, it is good to address these behaviors, or these issues, rather. But it's certainly very important when we also talk about the overall um, cost of health care. Mm-hmm.
3: Senator Friedman?
2: Yeah, so I, I couldn't agree more. Um, so... If we're gonna fix our broken, our very broken mental health care, behavioral health care system, we need to address um, parity. And um, clearly, despite the fact that it's the law of the land and we have both federal and state laws for parity, um, we are not anywhere near um, reaching that goal. So, um, And this is really resulting in a lack of access to appropriate care, which exacerbates everything. So if you have a um, dual diagnosis, it's not only affecting your behavioral health, it's affecting your physical health. And so um, I actually have filed a, a legislation uh, bill that will address parity, and um, it will get us cl- one step closer to, to achieving that. Um, so we would improve parity enforcement um, for, on both the commercial payers and the public p- uh, payers. And um, this is, it's kind of discouraging because the Department of Insurance has the authority to um, to ensure that there's parity, but for some reason we're not doing as much as we can. So this very specifically lays out what um, the payers have to provide in terms of data um, measuring um, med surge with behavioral health parity. Um, it will address some of the barriers to, uh, to access that are put up for people who are trying to um, receive behavioral health services. Um, it'll ensure that group Insurance Commission is part of that parity effort, and it uh, would ensure that there is um, consistent and fair application of medical necessity. Um, there's also issues around provider networks that we're working on to ensure that the networks are adequate and that people can get access to behavioral health specials- specialists when they need it. Um, and and it's a it's very acute for children and adolescents uh, re- trying to receive care. And then we have the issue of clawbacks, where um, the payers have uh, a limited time to um, uh, to claw back payments that they've made to providers, and this is, in turn, is causing people... Um, actually, it's just one of the things that are causing people to leave the system, which is a big issue. We are now finding that it is harder and harder to... Um, to get people to work in behavioral health and be part of the workforce, because not only of the incredibly low rates that the payers pay for behavioral health, and this is one of the things that we'll be looking at as part of parity, um, but also the uh, strain of trying to meet the requirements that payers put on providers um, who are just trying to get treatment for people is enormous. And so people are saying, you know, I can't do this anymore. And so it's becoming harder and harder for people to access uh, uh, behavioral health care. I think the ACOs will be a really interesting model that, that um, uh, MassHealth is rolling out. Um, but again, we have to ensure that when you have a capitated payment, that payment is enough and that covers what it means to take care of somebody with behavior with a behavioral health issue and also what that means when you take care of somebody who has a dual diagnosis. So I think we have to pay very special attention to how that's gonna roll out and ensure that it, it actually covers what is needed in order to take care of the whole person and stop siloing a mental health.
3: Wow. Great answers from both of you. Thank you.
0: Paul. So one issue getting a lot of national attention in, in our state uh, from consumers and, and actually even in the, the insurance industry is the whole issue of out-of-network or surprise billing. This this is when somebody with commercial insurance, let's say urgently or emergently, goes to the hospital – and they think that's a hospital that's in-network according to their insurance contract, but they encounter care from a physician, could be emergency room doctor, anesthesiologist, for example, who actually hasn't signed a contract and is so-called out-of-network, and therefore the patient receives a surprise bill with a lot of uh, additional cost sharing as, as a result. Uh, I know it's, it's been uh, something that the legislature has started to turn some attention to. Representative Benson, any, any thoughts about that topic?
1: Yes, actually this happened to me once. So uh, so I understand this very acutely. Um, and I'll just tell you quickly what happened is I went to my dermatologist for a skin cancer screening and the um, the biopsy that she took was sent off to a lab. Well, I got a bill in the mail from this lab that apparently was not in my network. Now, I didn't have a choice of what lab this went to and it just disappeared as I left the office. So. Um, so I had got, a, you know, several hundred dollars of a bill from this lab. And, you know, it, this is not something that the patient can really choose. This is, these are things that are happening beyond the patient's realm of, of, of choice, of understanding. Um, like you said, it can be in an emergent situation if you're in the hospital and you have surgery. Uh, and so I think the, the, the most important thing we need to do is make sure the patient's not stuck in the middle. And as much as we can do to um, get insurers and providers working on this issue outside of sort of putting the patient at at uh, in the middle of this billing and this this issue and force them to then go back and negotiate it is unfair because it's not due to a decision made by that patient. Um, so I think that you know the um, the legislation that passed last session in each of the chambers that addressed this. Um, I can see. Potentially moving something fairly early on this, I think this is a really important consumer protection issue for even patients. moving
0: this year potentially. Sure. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Senator Friedman.
2: Yes, I agree. I mean, I think what we're you know we both are pretty clear that the patient has to be removed from this process, and that we that there need to be provisions to set up a, a fair and reasonable um, process for reimbursement. But it's really between the provider. And the, and, the, um, and the payers, and, and should not include the patients. Because again, th- this is not something that they, are, that they have chosen, that, they have, um, that they're even involved in most of the time.
3: So last session, both the House and the Senate passed major comprehensive health reform legislation touching a lot of different aspects and issues and needs. One of the big issues was the variation in payments to hospitals that varies widely from some of the big academic teaching hospitals, very high, to sole community hospitals, very low. Uh, Both the House and the Senate attempted to address that, though in strikingly different ways, and then stalemated in July, and nothing happened. Should we expect action on that issue this session, and can you give us any sense of how there might be some bridging of the differences that were so evident last year? (laughs)
2: <laughs> we're looking at each other. <laughs> um, so, Senator I, Friedman. Okay. Um, why do I get to go first? Um, so, I this is this is a very 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 big issue, and it is not something that we're going to be able to skirt uh, if we are really going to address uh, healthcare costs. I think last year was uh, last session was unfortunate in that there was from in both the House and the Senate a certain amount of of uh, turnover that really kind of got in the way of the process. It wasn't anybody's fault. It was just given the complexity of this, it's very hard to come in at the last, have new players come in at the last minute and just pick up and just make a decision. Because as you, we don't need to tell you, either of you, um, how difficult this is. So I, I really believe that we are gonna work very hard to come to um, a consensus on how we can address this. So I, first, I've I've been in this position for now. I, it was fifteen minutes. It's now twenty. Um, but what I see is that um, we have these wonderful teaching hospitals that we uh, care very much about. That are very important to our state, to our country, to the world in what they do. Um, they are uh, they are beacons of innovation and. Um, they're very important to us. That doesn't mean that there isn't something to get out of those systems, some cost that we can bring out of that, of those, that group, that will c- allow them to continue be as wonderful as they are. Um, we have a whole array of community hospitals, and they're very, very important. They're very important to the people in those localities and. For many, it's their only option. We have to ensure that at the community level, the right um, services are in place, that they're efficient, that they're high quality. Um, But we can't just take money out of one place and throw it at something else. We have to be able to look at both ends of that spectrum. And first of all, ensure that, uh, that the community hospitals have the services that the community needs um, and, that, um, and that we're not, we're not wasting money where, uh, where it's not needed, and we have to ask those, those teaching hospitals to come, to come down a little bit. And I think if we can do that, if we can look at both ends of the spectrum and ensure quality and efficiency, um, then I think we can solve the problem, uh, or at least start to solve the problem.
1: I think this is the most complicated issue that we have facing us, even more so than the pharmaceutical spending, which is a big issue. And, you know, I think, you know, one of the things that I've been talking about as I go out and have gotten this new job and go out and talk to people is that, you know, we want to make sure that everyone has access to the right care at the right time for the best cost. And, you know, part of that is a partnership between us and what we talk about and patients and their cho- what the choices they make. You know the um, community hospitals offer very very important services, but unfortunately, too many patients drive past them on their way into Boston for care that really is it's not necessary to go to a academic medical center to um, have your child's tonsils removed, for example. Um, and so, you know, part of this is going to be also education around. Um, um, the choices that people are making whether to go to an er or to an urgent care center whether to go to their community hospital or when is the right time to actually take that ride into boston but you know cost and price does not necessarily equal quality and that's the other thing that i think we really need to do a better job talking with patients about as they're making these choices We have some very high-cost hospitals that have great outcomes, but we have some very low-cost community hospitals that have great outcomes. And those outcomes are not significantly different in many of the measures that we measure. And so by choosing to go to a Mass General, where it may cost twice as much um, as your community hospital, you're not necessarily going to get better outcomes. And um, so... We have a lot of work to do to figure out not only how we as policymakers and as regulators change sort of the structure of how, you know, the, the funding flows to these um, different entities, but I think we also really need to have a real conversation and an educational um, um, uh, product to help consumers, I use that term very loosely, but patients, Make these choices as well. Um, the other key thing in all of this is, you know, we keep mixing up the idea that that healthcare is a market, it's some sort of free market or some economic market, and it really isn't. People don't make choices the same way about healthcare as they do about buying a car. These are very, very different ways of approaching, uh, and so uh, hospitals have gotten into that as well. And I see a lot of community hospitals are also trying to compete in higher end um, treatments and, you know, uh, wings of hospitals to compete with academic medical centers, thinking that they're going to compete on this, you know, through advertising in the marketplace. Um, we have to watch for that, too. I think that is um, is potentially leveraging them in a way that is not necessarily the right level of care that they need in their community. So I think this is gonna be much more complicated than even what um, was proposed in the legislation last year. I think if we really, really wanna change this dynamic, we have to have a serious conversation about all the layers that feed into this problem
3: so so not trying to put in nail you down with a number but could either of you put the odds on something happening this session on hospital price variation
1: i think good i'm going to be positive i
2: i think good Mm -hmm. i think good i think that we we can't avoid it and and say we're doing um you know we're covering the issues around health care and i think that um, the rep raises a, a really good point is It's going to take both, all sides to have an honest conversation about what, you know, about what level of care should happen at, at, you know, at at what stages and where. And um, I, I also very much agree with the point that we can't treat patients like consumers of buying cars. And I get worried when I hear people say, well, we're gonna let's include the the patient in their in the discussion of their health care. Because that to me means often go go shop around. And you know when you your kid has cancer, you are not shopping around, okay? And and it also adds this kind of piece where well don't trust your healthcare Provider, go. You know, you have to go find the the best price, and that's just not going to happen in healthcare.
3: Just briefly, uh, last session we never saw any statement from the governor, his own position, or the Senate version or the House version. Are you getting any signals that the administration is going to take a different stance this session?
1: Yes. Okay,
3: great, Paul.
0: We'll, we'll look forward to hearing that that piece along with what you guys tried tried to. Uh, Decide to do to take on this issue. But you both did recently participate in the annual benchmark hearing where you meet with uh, members of your joint committee and the Health Policy Commission, and it does get into some issues tied to should the benchmark be changed, but also just general cost trends, as as you noted, I think, (laughs) Representative Benson. Any reactions or impressions uh, on on sitting through that uh, that hearing that uh, lasted with you?
1: Well, I mean, I think the overall message and the overall um, um, outcome of this was very positive. And the positive thing is we have a benchmark that's currently set at 3.1 and will stay there. But actually our cost cost grew only by 1.6%. And that's pretty amazing when you think about um, what we see not only nationally, but what we were seeing up until really the um, post-2012 cost reform. Package, um, I think it's working. It's working. Um, we still have, you know, I kind of feel like it's a little bit like whack-a-mole, things that pop up um, at are still higher cost, and so we need to figure out how to address them. But overall, it's working. So, it, it
0: meaning that the, the process of the benchmark and the Health Policy Commission, what it what and, it does as a cheerleader around that benchmark, is that what you're saying?
1: Yes, and sort of the mechanism that is in place in order to keep costs down. I mean, because it would be one thing, yes, it's great to to, to um, take in all this data and and put out a report and tell people what's happening, but there are actual consequences if costs are too high. And that's really, really important. I think the next thing that we will need to address is, should the HPC have the statutory authority to go below the Mm -hmm. 3.1% benchmark, because right now they can't. Mm -hmm. And- Stu
0: Allman's asked for that recently at the last Health Policy Commission meeting to change the timing of when they can start to, in essence, set their own benchmark.
1: Correct, correct. Because we want to continue that downward pressure. And right now we have, you know, we're only at half of the benchmarks theoretically. So there's not as much keeping that pressure going, and so we want to maintain that moving into the future. So having that ability, I think, is really important for the HPC to be able to look at projections and and have that authority.
0: Senator Friedman, your thoughts about that?
2: Yeah, I was really uh, impressed with the hearing, I thought, um, and I'm overall very impressed with uh, the Health Policy Commission and CHIA. I think they do a, a very good job and take their job very seriously. Um, what became clear to me at the hearing, um, what, and what continues to become clear, is the incredible complexity of the system, and um, that complexity has got to be a major driver of the costs. And so I think we need to begin to reform the cost dri- those cost drivers, but also we have to start looking at the complexity of the system and how do we remove complexity so that at least more money is going to um, actual direct
0: we say complexity. Do you mean administrative costs administrative in the
2: system? Administrative costs, and yeah. uh, you know, and uh, and state regulations, and um, the the relationships between the payers and the providers, and what now has to happen in order for the providers to actually do their job and and get reimbursed for it. Um, so I think we've just added a level of complexity that's enormous. Um, I I think it's really interesting. I mean, I think we've done an incredibly good job, but um, partners came in to me the other day and they were talking and they said, oh, we're so pleased we we only increased by 1.9%. And my response was, yeah, but where did you start? And so it's, you know, where else do we get to, so someone gets to say, you can only increase by 3.1%? Well, that's a huge amount of money in this system because there is, as we know, such an enormous amount of money in it to start with. So I do think we need to start actually, um, I agree that we have to start bringing that down and, you know, bringing that uh, growth down. And I think the Health Policy Commission so far has done a very good job and has used their authority well, and I would ask them to continue you know, to look at that.
3: Okay, final question. We saved the best for last. So Medicare for All, big national issue, single payer. Let's toss this whole crazy, wacky system we have and let's go Canada or Great Britain or whatever. Big conversation nationally and in states. So if you were... Members of either the U.S. House or the U.S. Senate, would you be co-sponsoring the national Medicare for All legislation? That's question one. Question two, as co-chair, would you like to advance and report out of your committee legislation to establish a Massachusetts single-payer system? Who wants to go first?
1: <laughs> All right. I'll
3: Representative.
1: <laughs> I'll dive in um yes if i were in the u.s house or u.s senate yes i would um i think your examples of great britain or canada are very very different examples i think you know there's a lot of different ways to do single payer i i don't think that health insurance should be you know made illegal um i think that people should have the opportunity to have wraparound you know um, private insurance if they want it but yes i think there should be a basic level of care for every american um, I have always been skeptical of doing this as a state on our own. And for, for a couple sessions, I actually filed a bill that would benchmark um, our spending to a theoretical single-payer system to look at what that would really, to really to gather the data. The problem is that's only theoretical. You know, so when there's a bill that's filed that says Medicare for All in Massachusetts, we don't have medicare in massachusetts nor do we have any model of a single-payer system like that in massachusetts our mass health program is run through insurers so we're not a direct payer as the government of any real services in massachusetts so we don't have that model so that in and of itself is is a big hurdle um so it's not like you can snap your finger and have a medicare for all in massachusetts the other thing is as a state We are not, we are very much dependent on workers, companies from out of state. We have a lot of people in our surrounding um, state. I grew up in New Hampshire. Um, half my family worked in Massachusetts, right? And so if we're saying we want to have Medicare for all for for uh, Massachusetts residents and tax businesses to support that, they still are going to have to have employee benefit plans for all of their out-of-state workers. And so it becomes extremely complicated. So if you work in Mass, and live in New Hampshire, um, what does that mean about your network and the availability? Because now, if you're in Massachusetts and get sick, nobody takes insurance, according to the legislation that's been filed. It becomes extremely complicated. Um, And of course, our academic medical centers, um, who bring patients in from all over the country and all over the world, would really be put, I think, at risk under this system. So I think to do it just on our own, is extremely complicated um, which is why i think we've seen it fail in vermont and and hasn't really gained steam in any other state but from um, a u.s perspective we're the only industrialized nation that does not do this mm-hmm. and i think it's a shame and we do do it for many sectors of our population we do it for kids we do it for the aging we do it for va um, um, folks we should be doing this for everyone okay
3: thank you senator
2: um so in theory I'm a big um medicare for all proponent and I agree that at the um it's it would be really hard to do it at the state level and not have uh, federal support or have do it at the federal level. My issue becomes is it's a really easy thing to say, but what exactly does it mean and how is it going to work? And um I agree with everything that Rep Benson said, but there's also the piece that is the public ready for this. And if the public isn't ready, it will be, uh, it can't, it cannot work because it will require such a shift in how we provide medical care and what our healthcare system looks like. And if people aren't ready for that um, or or desperate for something brand new, it is going to be very hard to implement. It is going to be a huge change for people. And, you know, just their taxes alone are going to have to go up because we're going to have to cover healthcare for everybody, which is a great idea and, and is something we should be doing. So but it's going to be a huge shift. And the other thing we can't ignore is that right now we ration healthcare all the time. But it's very obfuscated, right? We don't, it's not clear how we we do it because people can't afford healthcare and so they don't get a certain level of care. Um, But when you go into a Medicare for all system, we're gonna have to make decisions about how our tax dollars are going to be spent. And again, we're gonna need some kind of consensus in order to be able to do that. So I am a proponent of this. In the meantime, though, we can do so much and have so much work to do to fix this system um, the way it is right now to make it better for for consumers. Somebody came up to me and I gave them that spiel and they said, hey, it's a total mess. It doesn't work. How bad can it be if we go to Medicare for all? And there's some truth to that, but I just don't think we're we're ready. And one thing I am very uh, supportive of is for the state to start to research this and get real data and make real comparisons about what would it look like and what would it mean and how would things change. So I'm very, very much in favor of that.
3: So thank you both very much for that. And uh, it's great to have you both in the leadership of this important committee and congratulations and good luck to both of you, Paul.
0: We look forward to having you back uh, as you take on these complex but important issues. So thank you again.
2: Thank you.